You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Good evening, everyone, and welcome back to the future, or forwards towards the past, in tonight's event with South African writer Masande Nchaga. My name is Daniel Rökolt, and I work with the artistic program here at the House of Literature. I knew that I wanted to write about apartheid using science fiction to emphasize those elements of it that were surreal or hard to believe, Nchanga has said. And in his novel Triangulum, he does just that. In a story alternating between the 1990s and early 2000s on the one hand, and 20 years into the future on the other, Nchanga explores South Africa's dark past and how it continues to shape the present, while also imagining a dystopian future, all told through the lives of a girl that may or may not have special powers. Masanda Nchanga is one of the most exciting new literary voices coming out of South Africa today. His debut novel, The Reactive, won him the Betty Trask Award, while Triangulum was nominated for the Ilube Nomo Award for Best Speculative Fiction Novel by an African. His latest publication is a chapbook of poetry and short stories called Native Life in the Third Millennium. And joining Nchanga on stage tonight is Yulia Vierloka. She is a literary translator and founder of the sci-fi-oriented publisher Meteor. Please give them both a warm welcome. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it's a great pleasure to, to meet you, Masande. And uh, tonight we will talk about your novel, Triangle. Looks like this. Uh, about science fiction literature and uh, how looking into the future may give us a clearer view of our past and our present. Right. So, as a start, I would like you to maybe tell a little bit more about yourself and... Um, how and when did you decide to become a writer? All right. Um, thank you, everyone, for coming. Um, well, really, uh, I think if we were to trace it back, I think it begins probably like the year um, I was born. I was born in 1986 in what was then known as the Siskai homeland. And the homeland or the Bantustan system in South Africa was a system whereby large numbers of the native population used to be relocated from the metropolises and urban areas into rural areas where under segregation they kind of existed as um, a labor reserve. Now these um, homelands, there were quite a few actually um, spread across the country, were actually um, sold to the population as independent black states. So what they would have um, were their own kind of like black leaders who often ran them like dictatorships, actually. And they didn't really have a functional economy, but instead um, were kept aloft, I suppose, um, by what was then known as white South Africa for the purposes of maintaining the segregation. Mm. Um, so in what's actually kind of like um, the typical absurdity of apartheid. I was born in South Africa, meaning that my mother drove out to the um, coastal city of East London. Um, and I was born in a hospital called Freer there. And then after I was born, um, and after she left the maternity ward, we then drove back into the homeland, which was a couple of kilometers because that's, she couldn't legally stay in, 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 um, in South Africa. Mm. And yeah, um, and there I kind of grew up in uh, what was then the biggest um, township in the Siskai homeland called Mdanzane, um, which very oddly was kind of um, divided into these units. So my mom had a house in NU1, and NU stood for native unit. So I think just that is something that's kind of like never left me. And I think um, I go on to like speak further about it, but just that 
categorization of human beings into like units and instead of like human beings, but like just units of labor um, arranged a particular way, um, always kind of stuck with me. Mm. Um, 1986 is also the year that uh, South Africa was under the, um, a state of emergency. Mm. And my mom, um, she was a journalist and um, a single mom at the time. And so the more things um, became heated during apartheid. And this is even during the um, interregnum, which is this pause, the space between the regime change, um, between the National Party and the liberation government. Um, there was a high spike in violence during that time as well. And so she had to figure out ways to keep me safe, mm. you know? We used to get warned all the time about not approaching strange packages that were lying on the street because they might contain explosives. And so I think those were like the origins of how I kind of became um, a bit of a shut-in and a child who um, was kind of glued to the television. And then we, um, we started getting um, these um, bootleg Nintendo systems which were actually like um, mass-produced versions of um, Nintendos, like from China, that we became really obsessed with, um, even though like most of the captions were in Japanese and we didn't really understand. And my mom was pleased. It kept me off the streets. It kept me safe. And I think um, that's when actually I became really interested in narrative for the first mm. time. And, um, and then... You know, the, the, the homeland collapsed um, after mass protesters um, stood up against the then government, um, resulting in a tragic event known still as the Bisho Massacre, mm. um, which left a lot of people injured and um, killed a number as well. And after that, I think it was always a case of my mom trying to move from one environment to the next as the country was transforming. And as our um, quality of life improved or the harder she worked, and the idea was always to get me to go to like a better and better school. And as a result, because of relocating so much, um, I didn't, I often didn't have a lot of time to establish like really like strong, um, friendships or bonds that would last because sooner or later I'd have to move again. Mm. And this is, but this is the time around which I actually started to become um, a serious uh, reader. Mm. Yeah, I, I began to find solace in books. And also the more I read, actually, um, the more I was able to discover other writers that I felt I shared a sensibility with. Um, and I remember actually in my reading journey getting to the point where I felt such recognition and so charged by something that I'd read that um, I was overwhelmed by the desire to, to create something as well. And, and so like I, I really began writing as a result in high school. And by the time I was... Um, in the 12th grade, what we call matric, uh, I published my first story. Mm -hmm. And that kind of convinced me at the time that um, I, I actually wanted to be a writer. Mm. What know? did you, what kind of story was it? Um, <laughs> it, was, it was actually, a, it was a story called, I wrote one first that I really liked because I felt like there was some kind of discovery of a voice in it in the sense that I could read it back to myself and I felt there was a certain quality to it that felt alien even to me. You know, the same way that you kind of experience a book that's written by someone else and printed. And I think what that was in retrospect was that my own um, self-consciousness or like the pretensions that a young writer has had kind of... Um, had lifted, 
and instead there was like um, this reflection of what I what I truly you know felt like and how I experienced and saw the world and so that was a story that I finished at 16 called electrons and then um, the story that got published um, when I was in matric was a story about you know um, I suppose like disaffected post-apartheid youth um, who were still feeling a sense of alienation even though they had not been under the subjugation that their parents had been under but just because of how accelerated everything had been you know after the fall of apartheid and the inequality that still existed and um, what was beginning to reveal itself as like this discrepancy between this vision of hope and actually like um, a country that was in deep need of spiritual, psychological and um, economic recovery, you know. And yeah, so that was the first story mm. <laughs> I finished. Not very cheerful, but um, <laughs> it kind of, um, it, it set me down on this path where I felt... Because previously, a lot of the material that I was reading, that I was inspired by, um, was from all over the world. And it's where I, I began to pick up techniques as a writer. But it was still a challenge for me to kind of, to, to, to learn all of those techniques and then to apply them, um, not only to South Africa, but to my experience of South Africa, mm. which wasn't a th something that I had seen largely represented in the literature that I'd read. Mm. Um, our literature was very, um, was incredibly serious. Um, it was written with a lot of anger against the regime. And it was also like very heavy, you know, with messaging. And it didn't really leave a lot of room uh, for characters who perhaps didn't ha have that stronger sense of conviction. And we're dealing with things like alienation um, and just kind of like the pains of growing up, you know, as a young person. And so it, my goal was to incorporate the techniques that I'd learned, this position that I was in that I felt was unique. And then finally, you know, to mm -hmm. reconcile with our literary history, which has quite a number of grades. And um, so that story kind of set me along this path of um, being a writer that tries to be true to my sensibility, but also to be socially engaged, mm. um, as painful as sometimes that that could be, actually. Yeah. Do you think like uh, other writers in your generation may experience something similar? Um, sure, you know, um, I think this kind of exploration actually begins with the generation just before mine, mm. um, with um, Gen X actually, in particular uh, a South African writer known as uh, Kesula Deka, who died tragically young by his own hand in 2005. And um, yeah, he was kind of dealing with this clash Mm. that we'd, we were seeing as the country was now becoming cohesive, you know, and there was this um, this tension between what could be perceived as the modern and the tradition, you know, which are also like cultural discrepancies, discrepancies in worldview and ideology. And um, also how each of these cultures that had been kept separate were actually forced into a state of evolution and intermingling, even though um, in some senses perhaps they were underprepared and people were also in a way underprepared. So yeah, he was kind of like the first novelist to delve into um, a multiracial social geography, dealing with different sexualities, um, with also the beginnings of like a disillusionment actually, you know, with the liberation uh, party in rulership. Um, which I think 
and so he was a writer who I think belongs to Gen X. And then um, my work comes after that. Mm. And I guess maybe perhaps one of the most the, the most pronounced differences between us, I guess, would be like um, more of an integration of technology, mm. um, of the internet and uh, philosophies behind technology as well. And also like media consumption and the idea of forging your own identity instead mm. of falling into a national category. And um, I think, you know, the generation following us, of course, has a, a huge discussion around gender. Mm. You know, um, this is where we're seeing a lot of trans discourse as well, and also how that fits into um, our culture and how actually it's not that alien to South African um, mm -hmm. traditional cultures. Yeah. Yeah. But typically, um, all three are regarded as part of... Um, one umbrella group, which mm. is called the born free generation. Mm. So this is the generation that didn't have um, an enemy as visible as the apartheid regime, but rather was forced into introspection yeah. and having to um, question power in all its forms, actually, even from, um, you know, the party that led to our liberation. Uh. When on this literary journey of yours did you find uh, science fiction as a genre to thinking and writing yeah. and experimenting? Um, well, I mean, I'd always loved science fiction, I think, ever since the bootleg Nintendo games and, you know... Um, like, I don't know, like starting from like Space Invaders and and the programming on TV, you know, animation. Um, it's something that I really enjoyed and also like watching a lot of like science fiction films. And, but, you know, I kind of parked it for a while and I concentrated on being a realist writer. Um, I was very interested in like, when I was in university, I was interested in the modernists. And my first novel follows a psychological logic. You know, it doesn't really have a plot. Kind of like in homage to those writers. And um, I was also like very interested in existentialism as well. And I came out on the other side of that book. Um, and I think I had gone as far as I could in that direction. Mm. And in some ways, it had been a difficult book to write, you know. Um, the reactive was kind of about me coming to terms with um, my position in South Africa um, and our kind of so-called rainbow nation. And also, really, as a young person, interrogating what my purpose was and kind of... Um, facing down fears of my own mortality. And so I wrote that book, I finished it. Um, it found its readers and I was, you know, quite happy with it. But when I, I began um, working on my second book, this one, um, I also realized that, you know, I'd also really been interested in postmodernism as well, you know and intertextuality and taking different texts, creating an almost um, pastiche. And also, I wanted to reintroduce play into my, into my practice. And I remember very early in the stages of writing this book, I remember being in the library um, when I was really young and really loving those uh, choose-your-own-adventure-like mm. novels, like turn to page, whatever, and, you know, to see what happens. Mm. Then you turn to page 30 and you're dead, and then <laughs> you cheat and you go back, obviously. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I became interested in, like, just reintroducing that idea of play. Mm. And I think also I felt ready, finally, to write about um, 
the Tisho massacre and growing up and living in Tisho mm. and coming from um, what then to me seemed like a middle class of um, civil servants um, and what was usually like a relatively like peaceful environment. Although, you know, with age and hindsight, I'd realized that it was actually fabricated. It was a kind of simulation because actually the country um, was on fire mm. and it would erupt um, with the massacre of 1992 when I was six. And when I began to think about that time, actually, as much as we were playing video games, we'd also go outside and like um, fill up water bottles and kind of pretend that they were Molotov cocktails or would like sing um, liberation songs we didn't know the meaning of. So whatever was happening in the country actually filtered into our play. Mm. And um, because there was a large contingency of parents in this community, you know, who worked as civil servants for the homeland government, which was kind of like indirectly serving the regime, mm. After it collapsed, um, it became something that was very difficult for the community to talk about. And there was this kind of conspiracy of silence around it, you know. Um, and it ended very badly as well. And it's one of the strange things about it because it's a, it's a living history, you know. Um, the Brigadier Opakozo, who actually um, okayed the soldiers opening fire on the protesters is a man who still lives today. And um, I mean, the, the event is commemorated, but a lot of the families who are still affected are still alive. So it's, it's, it's a living history. And the more I kind of um, progressed in my own writing journey, I, I came to the realization that not a lot of people had written literature about this, mm. um, about the homeland system, or even what had happened in Bishop. And I felt finally prepared to do it. So it was this, this duality of um, at once remembering what was playful and bright and imaginative and inspiring about um, my childhood, and also what was um, really like hidden painful and to some even shameful and um, and also eerie, you know, um, just trying to speak about what that community was like, you know, after the collapse of the homeland system was so removed from what reality was now that actually, you know, the leap in my head was logical. Um, that it could actually be something from a science fiction, mm. you know, film. And once that thought took root, um, I, I couldn't shake it off. And, um, yeah, I had to labor away and write, like, <laughs> hundreds of pages before it left me alone. But um, it began to make uh, a lot of sense. And a lot, of, a lot of it was actually discovered in the process of writing it, you know, mm. um, after knowing that I wanted to write about Bishop and I wanted to write about apartheid mm. using science fiction, and then the parallels to the to the present, and being able to project the future, all of that just kind of fell naturally mm. uh, in in the process of writing it. So, since we we're talking about this book, um, yeah, it's. It, the novel is so so rich, and there's so many themes and things going on. So I'm not. I was like unsure how to how to introduce it, because you can in a way be to, uh, begin with the with the frame story, or you can also focus on the story of the main narrator. Um, just so everybody will have a little bit of idea what is uh, what is going on. The year is uh, 2043 and an astronomer at the South African Space Agency receives a package filled with documents, which contain a warning that the Earth will end in 10 years. 
The, the documents are diary entries and audio tapes by a girl relaying first her adolescence in the 1990s when she explores her sexuality and tries to find her mother, who disappears without a trace when she was little, and then moving to her daily life as an adult. So maybe we could read a little excerpt from the beginning sure. of the book, so I'll get a little feeling of how it sure. of how it sounds. Uh, this is from the first part of the book called The Machine, and um, it's a diary entry or a memoir entry from the 4th of October, 1999. <clears throat> I was 14 when I first lingered in front of the mirror next to our home computer and touched myself, coming twice, so I wouldn't think about Mama's abduction. I'd never done that in front of a mirror before, and I'd never gone beyond that number, but I told myself to stop when Dada woke up coughing. I snuck back to my room instead and listened to him leaving the house. Later, I'd learned that he'd gone to the hospital. Close to midnight, our front door unlocked again, and Dada walked back in, bringing his illness with him. I opened his bedroom door to let out smoke. You're doing it again, I said. Go to sleep. I don't feel well. I could tell he wasn't sure if it was me or Mama. It's me, I said. Then tell me what's wrong with you. I don't know what it is. Then go back to sleep. I turned and went to bed. I could still smell the cigarette smoke seeping out from his room. I sat up in bed, measuring my breathing so he wouldn't know I was awake, waiting for him to fall asleep. Lying back, I looked up at the ceiling and thought about how, 42 years ago, the Soviet Union had launched Sputnik 1, the world's first artificial satellite, into orbit. Not that Dada would have cared. Although he had a degree, it was in agriculture, from a farming college in the mid-70s. I closed my eyes, feeling cold as the bedsheets bunched up behind me, and I remember at the time when I'd felt a pain similar to his in magnitude at least. I was nine years old when I fell off a creaking swing in a corner of Bishop Park and saw a column of rain clouds racing towards me. Moments later, I flipped over and hit the ground with the left side of my head. For a minute afterwards, I couldn't see a condition the doctor at our local hospital described as corneal sunburn. It happened when I was lying on my back in the park, unable to move, staring directly into the sun as my head rolled over and everything went dark. That was in 1994. Afterwards, Dada often told the story to his friends, pausing to mention that I never cried, a fact the doctor attributed to shock. I still remember standing in the bathroom that morning, trembling as Mama cleaned the cut on my brow and tried to dress it with an old T-shirt from Dada's closet. Then the two of them drove me to our local hospital and walked me down a long corridor that blinked under a fusing fluorescent light. I got stitched seven times, prescribed 500 milligrams of paracetamol, and given a week off school. I wasn't concussed, but for the first few days, being home felt different. My parents tottered around the house, silhouetted against the ceiling light, their shadows providing me with care, Vicks vapor rub, mainstone soup, and continental pillows. Through all their efforts and between fevers, I lay on my back, hearing their voices as if from the inside of a bunker, a booming echo that preceded each one's presence inside the bedroom or the lounge, where I either slept or sat absorbing blurs of television without sound. Mama, a counselor at the University of Fort Hare, had been a communications officer for the homeland government and liked to leave our TV turned to the news. That Saturday, when my vision healed, I spent the afternoon drifting in and out of sleep in front of different news reports, waking up to broadcasts of conflicts in countries whose names I couldn't pronounce. In the evening, Mama joined me on the sofa, stroked my neck and felt my forehead then settled back to watch the explosions flicker into clouds of dust and fire with me. The two of us silenced. The following summer, she went missing, and four years later, 
Dada returned coughing from a different hospital in a different town. Often I'd wonder what connected us that afternoon as we watched the bloodshed in Mogadishu together. If that was when I inherited the machine, as one doctor would later suggest, although he didn't seem to know much about it. But feeling her touch on the wound had soothed it. Later, after she was gone, I tried to evoke the same feeling with Mama again, calling her back into the living room with news reports on the disasters she'd left behind with us on Earth. With Dada asleep, I opened my eyes and breathed out again, absorbing the newfound warmth in my sheets. I could no longer hear him coughing, our house having grown still, as if the two of us had been interred inside a capsule and sent out into deep space to freeze. Maybe on a mission to find her, I thought, but how would he know that? Then I began to drift off too, thinking about Sputnik, and it pre- thinking about how Sputnik had persisted for three weeks after its batteries gave out. The satellite had floated alone in the dark for two months before falling back to Earth, which I took as evidence that things came back down in the end, including Mama. Thank you. Sure. Um, should I carry on with the? Recording? I think so. Okay, yeah. great. Um, so this next part jumps to another timeline in the novel, which is in 2035, actually. But what's happening is that the narrator has been put under um, regression therapy. So it's a recording of her rec- recalling um, her life as a 16, 17-year-old in 2002. Um, a recording taken in 2035. Um, regression therapy recording 001, date of recollection 2805-2002, date of recording 2006-2035, duration 4 minutes, format monologue. Ever since I got put on medication, I've been thought of as defective. That's what people decide about me. In the eighth grade at my law school, I was asked to join the debate team after I saw a speech coach. My grades were good, but I needed self-confidence. I didn't speak enough, and when I did, it was hard to discern how I felt. That's what my English teacher said. The speech coach taught me how to gesture, maintain eye contact, correct my posture, and project my voice, but I didn't join the team in the end. I was diagnosed with reduced affect display or emotional blunting, my doctor said, from the medication he'd prescribed to me when I was 12. It meant I couldn't express my emotional responses as well as most people. It wasn't an uncommon side effect, he said, with lots of patients learning to live with it. The pills he gave me, Celexa and Paxil, were treating me well for the insomnia that had brought me to his office, and he suggested we keep to the regimen. I couldn't remember how I'd been before. I sat in his office and agreed. It's now been five years. Picking a dandelion seed off my gym slip today, Pod says she knows a bad joke, and then she tells it to us. The thing with reality, she says, People used to have the sense for it, but now they don't buy it. Pausing for a moment, she says she means sense. (laughs) The three of us laugh. It's the end of May, a month before our winter break, and I've just got out of detention, my second one since I stopped being a student monitor in junior high. Lita bends down to loosen his laces and sighs. Maybe heaven is dead, he says. At home later, with my earphones on, I try to sleep, but I don't. Instead, I find myself standing in front of our bathroom mirror at 1 a.m. I weigh 45 kilograms from having had rails on both of my jaws for an underbite, and the mirror reflects my cheekbones, my neck, my lips, my hair. It needs to be braided again, I think, although it's still neat. In the living room, I switch on the TV and find an an infomercial for a range of pans, an old man in a chef's tunic uses a non-stick casserole 
to caramelize sugar over a low flame. He pours it into a cereal bowl and his audience claps. I switch it off. In my bedroom, I open a drawer and take out a makeup mirror and magnifying glass. I tilt the mirror on its stand until it fills up with the reflection of the moon through the parted curtains. Angling the lens over the rock surface, I count the craters that mark its damage until I fall asleep. Thank you. Sure. So I was wondering, um, in this part, which is the, the manuscript written by the narrator, Uh, why did you choose to have the, both this kind of uh, memoir and the, the recording like intertwined? Um, why did I decide to have um, the, um, the novella in the middle and or the recordings and the memoir? Yeah, I like this that you're <laughs> departing from this kind of linear uh, storytelling. So you have this, uh, you have narrator uh, telling her story from. Like once when she's uh, like in the 90s and then when yeah. recalling her memories from like 10 years yeah. later. So it's a kind of interesting yeah, yeah. thing to um, do. Mm. Um, multiple reasons. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to admit that one of them, I guess I'll start with this one, is it, it is a little bit of a petty rightly reason uh, because... After I had finished uh, mm. my first novel, a lot of people praised it for the language, but I often got slapped on the wrist for not um, being able to, to write a plot. <laughs> like beautiful language, but it needs to learn how to tell a story. And, and so I, I think there was some part of me that took that personally, and I was like, you know what? <laughs> I, I'm not going to just write one. I'm going to write three stories in <laughs> <laughs> one book. Um, but really, I, I mean, I, I was interested in each timeline. Um, mm. And I was very much interested in this, this memoir, which is a lot about her um, being a daughter Mm. You know, and it's a lot about her mother and also um, her father's grief. And I was also interested in the 2002 timeline um, because it had a lot to do with um, like this un under documented like epoch in like South African history, especially as a young person, which is like the early 2000s. And I wanted that also to be um, contained. And then, of course, Uh, with five weeks um, in the plague, the, the novella of autofiction that is actually written by the narrator mm. um, was where I was able to do um, my most speculative writing about um, my concerns really about like capitalism and climate and how those two intersect you know, with the third world. And I also wanted that to be contained. So I was very much interested in writing these three stories, um, which are three different um, refractions, really, of the narrator, you know, um, kind of as a child, um, a 14-year-old, as a teenager, and then um, as someone in her 30s, and then eventually, you know, someone in her late 40s. And um, I wanted them to be self-contained, Also, I was very interested in experimenting um, with um, genre as well, right? Um, the memoir part, I wanted it to kind of read and to pay tribute to, um, you know, what you would usually expect from literary fiction. Um, and then the 2002 timeline is more of a homage to like coming of age stories, but also like the mystery genre, mm. you know, um, they trying to solve a mystery. And with the novella, um, which is, you know, um, introduced in the book as autofiction, that's more like your speculative fiction or science fiction, like in the vein of cyberpunk. And these are all like genres that I, I grew up um, loving. And it's, they all, except 
perhaps the memoir. Um, I think for the memoir, maybe you can enjoy the language, but with the mystery, it's this. <laughs> <laughs> it's this. Uh, it's supposed to be this great distraction because I think mystery is such a rewarding genre. Like when you read it, and even when you watch it, because you've got this intrepid, you know, protagonist unveiling the story, like um, layer by layer, by going around and investigating certain things, interrogating um, certain people, you know. And of course, at the heart of this is, is this this tragedy, you know, about her losing her mom. Mm. But her and her friends can cast it as this kind of adventure that we go on. And um, we can go along with them until, you know, this, this realization, which for me kind of is, is a lot like growing up, really. And um, with the memoir, I guess it needed that kind of um, retrospective wisdom um, of a child kind of uh, having a really honest appraisal of both her parents, you know, and what happened to them. And, um, yeah, you know, and, and the, last, the last one, Five Weeks in the Plague, the novella, was a way to try, against all odds, to try and have a little bit of fun, um, <laughs> <laughs> despite a very, um, not, not a very optimistic, you know, future, if things carry on the way that they are. Um, could you tell a bit about what happens in this uh, this part? It's uh, kind yeah. of bleak. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so um, the novella really is um, where this warning that the book has um, about the end of the world in 2050 um, really comes to life. Um, so the book is a collection of writings and recordings by the narrator. And the most coded a part of the book is the is the novella, and that's the one that actually speaks to her um, her reality at the time. And you know what it does really is um, it takes the present um, as far as how technology is incentivized, you know, by profit. And also that profit um, comes before uh, human life and it comes before the environment as well. And also how a saturation of that technology in the West suddenly um, opens up um, the developing world um, as um, a new and kind of like fertile uh, uh, playground and often comes bearing gifts um, and because life is under so much strain in the developing world, um, we're willing to accept these gifts without interrogating them. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a part of the book that imagines a logical conclusion. Um, if, you know, like late stage capitalism really does um, triumph at the cost of everything else, which would probably mean, um, for us, I guess, lessened um, government regulation, um, less of a lean towards our like social democracy to like a hyper-competitive uh, capitalist landscape. And South Africa being a country that's very rich in minerals, um, which can be extracted, but at the high cost, um, firstly of uh, of the environment and also very dangerous to extract as well so this imagines a world where um, there are no regulations preventing major corporations from extracting what they need from the land and also from the population and in fact um, parts of the country are sold to corporations actually and that is because of its own kind of um, collapse economically and so it imagines um, a near future where there is um, this value that is um, put on data that is extracted from people without consent and also um, an open market 
in terms of um, extracting minerals from the earth at whatever cost. And then it, this is also the part of the book where these two groups emerge um, who have who go against the system, but in different ways, you know. So the one group call themselves the returners, and there are people who believe that the Industrial Revolution was a mistake. Um, humankind should have never gone down that path. And the best way to actually like exist in uh, cohesion with the planet was to actually forego technological advent and uh, return to more, I wouldn't even say pastoral, but like rural living that maybe even forgoes livestock or any sort of farming. And um, the other group are called the tank, and they believe um, that there is no going back. And instead, in order to liberate people and to save what remains of the planet, um, they have to be more sophisticated than the system, and they have to outsmart it by subverting its tools. And that's what can lead to like a more peaceful um, future. And yeah, and, and so as, as, as these groups emerged and these characters emerged, and um, one of the things that happens in the book, of course, is that it almost becomes um, like a spy thriller. You have one member of one group infiltrating another. And I think, you know, that osmosis between the two also kind of, well, now that I think about it, you know, is a display of my own ambivalence because mm -hmm. I do not know actually, um, you know, what way would be most profitable for humankind. But it was, I was just merely posing the question, you know. Would you like to read a little bit from this? Sure. This part? Um, I'm going to read. From. I think it's 251 in this edition. Oh, is it? Yes, yes, <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, there, there are uh, three editions of the book, uh, which was actually a. Um, Another really fun thing to do, because when the book gets um, introduced, like in the introduction, Dr. Naomi Wittelezi talks about its tricontinental publication. And that was like a detail I added <laughs> very late when I realized that um, it will be published in South Africa, the UK, and the United States at the same time. It's very nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in this part, the, the narrator has been courted by this group called the Tank, mainly comprised of um, hackers who kind of um, live in this uh, dystopian near future South Africa um, that we were just talking about. The room was located below ground. It felt like it too, from the heat. It was divided into three sections and shaped like a gel capsule with a curved ceiling. It was awash in amber light that blended with the blue tint of computer screens. Those were present in numbers, each unit plugged into a workstation built against the wall. Mark led me to a break room at the rear where four of his people had gathered. He was curt with them. He introduced me as a covert agent explaining that personal inquiries were about me were not permitted. They nodded. It was not an unfamiliar ritual. I decided to return the favor. I didn't ask for a name, if none was offered, and I didn't initiate conversation. Instead, for the next half hour, we drank and spoke around a steel table, as solemn as generals frowning over battle plans. I couldn't follow most of the conversation, but I retained what I could. For example, I learned that the tank got its name from this bunker we were standing in, where it was founded. It was a cell of converts. Two were former data brokers. One was a cybersecurity specialist, and the fourth, a man with a thick black mustache, introduced himself as a legal consultant. The rest, Equal numbers, male and female, 
were black hat hackers hunched anonymously over the workstations outside the break room. Each had defected from a different cell in order to follow Mark's cause. As the night wore on, I suspected they'd retained all their motives too. The bunker doubled up as the base of a state-sponsored hacker cell, I learned. A new initiative from the Department of Defense. A gray site still in its beta phase and run by Mark. He'd offered each hacker in the team a chance to work in the open, to breathe at long last with expunged records and altered identities. And then he recruited them, along with their gratitude, from the government cell into the tank. He kept the same address. He made use of the same resources. I watched him command the table. Here's the thing, he said. There's no salvation in regression. That's the pattern of evolution. It's unidirectional. He was speaking to one of the former data brokers. The man had asked him about the possibility of working with a new eco-terrorist group in Cape Town, environmentalists with anti-tech leanings, if there might be strength in numbers. Mark frowned, wanting to brush the question off. Here's what I mean. He took a long breath. Fine. Let's put an end to information. Humankind has to find a new organizing principle. Am I right? The data set would remain the same. That's, would be, that's what would be at our disposal. The cumulative knowledge of humankind's past and projected future, which is what we have now. That would be the foundation of whatever new world we wanted to build. To advance, we have to build on more than the ruins required by a retreat from technology. To stamp on the heads of the powerful, we have to climb their cages and turn them into scaffolds. There was a chair around the table, but I couldn't help but cut in. I'm not too sure, I said. For instance, what if one applies a novelist's perspective? Take drafting. There, a text gains refinement with each iteration, but the author must be willing, first and foremost, to destroy all that's before her for a do-over, if it's required. That willingness is paramount, and without it, there's a limit on how much a draft improves. Mark nodded. I like that. For a moment, he sounded like he might even mean it. I do. But in the end, the trouble lies in our bodies, doesn't it? The human mind has advanced far ahead of its vessel, its source of energy. There's also been genetic wear. He raised his hands, indicating himself. The point being, human be humankind couldn't survive a transition back to nature, even if it wanted to, nor the time it would take to build new and egalitarian civilizations. Between our genetic weaknesses, autoimmune diseases, starch diets, immunodeficiencies, mental illnesses, and limited resources, as well as the shifting climate of a scoured planet, the Earth couldn't hold out for another go at us. The path backwards is extinction. I wanted to resist him, of course, to ask him if he was able to think outside the binaries he'd imposed on the experiment. Nature, civilization, past, future. But we were disturbed by an uproar from the workstations. A door had opened up in the left wall of the capsule. I hadn't noticed it on walking in. The hackers were cheering as they followed each other through the doorway. Mark winced as I went over to him. I apologize for the disturbance. I wanted to hear more. Thank you. How was the, this book um, received in, in South Africa? Was there any like skepticism on the, the science fiction because in, in Norway we still have this thing that even though we have some very good science fiction writers and some writers are starting to like being interested in speculative fiction but yeah. it's still some kind of like there's a, it's, it's, the, the critics are still a bit critical yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, interesting yeah um, I mean I definitely wanted it to be science fiction mm. Um, as a tribute to my younger self. And also, 
you know, as a, as a kind of provocation to that idea that it's, uh, it's a very unserious, you know, like genre. I mean, like, you look at a writer like Stanislaw Lem, I mean, he, to me, he's like this towering figure and such a great example of what a writer can be in terms of how he engaged with society, his imagination and um, philosophy as well. But, you know, as much as we have a really um, old literary culture and history, it's also in many ways pretty new. Mm -hmm. Um, There hasn't been nearly enough uh, science fiction novels to garner that skepticism. Mm. And in fact, uh, it was mostly received as a literary novel and then like with these very curious aspects. Yeah. You know, like um, I think, yeah, the the press, for the most part, if they engaged with that, they just thought it was very strange and coming from a very strange writer, which is... <laughs> Uh, something I'm used to. Right yeah. Now. Yeah. <laughs> that is a good thing, I think. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. It's interesting with the, this, um, you're bringing up Lem because there's a small uh, um, uh, Lem and his um, work called Eden appears yeah. in the book. And I was like, is this Thomas Love Lem? <laughs> yeah, it is sounds. Yeah, <laughs> and I was really yeah, I liked it a lot. And uh, but like thinking because I'm a big fan of his work and uh, uh, and like working with him myself. But the um, one thing when I reading your novel is like would often I feel like reading Lem, like his his characters sometimes feel like more like symbols of moral yeah. dilemmas or representations than actual living and breathing human beings with yeah. their with their problems and um, what I really appreciated about your work is that the, the characters are really complex humans and, and human yeah. so it feels really like um, truthful if you can use that kind of word Thank you. And of course, you will, unfortunately won't find any black queer women in Lem's <laughs> books. <laughs> no, um, I think, uh, thank you for that, actually. Mm. I, I think it's a very, like, um, it's, it's incredibly important. Um, because I think in the end, you know, like the most valuable and the most uh, sophisticated and the most complex, puzzling, um, and restorative, like technology, you know, are are human beings, and there are these capsules, like I, I mentioned earlier, about living history, um, and that's one thing I think humankind will never really be able to replicate, you know, um, and that's itself, you know, you could have like a hundred billionaires like in a hall, but <laughs> none of them could like create, actually create like a single like human hair. And and for me, that's that's what art is about, essentially. You know, um, we can discourse about technology, but truly, um, at the center of it is this humanity. And that's why it was important for this book to essentially be about um, this character's growth and this character's family, mm. really. Yeah, amidst an eco-apocalypse. Yeah, <laughs> but that is life. Life is everything. Exactly. <laughs> I think we have, uh, I don't know if we have any much more time. It was. It's a great pleasure just listening to what you're saying and there's so much more we could talk about and Thursday you'll have a lecture. So yes, for those yes. who haven't had enough, we can go and listen to that. Uh, just one last questions, uh, question. Uh, what is your next project? Is there something you talk about, or is there anything you can like um, talk about it? So, not the book I've written after this, but like the book after yeah. that. Wow, <laughs> I think I'm trying. I'm trying to write a book about the beginning of the world. I don't know. I I'm, I'm not really sure. Like, <laughs> what that means. Um, I think I'll I'll talk about it a little bit more. I think in my lecture but um, I think in general it's it's I I suppose it's how the world is storied Mm. you know how the world is narrativized and I'm interested right now in um, the literary history of the region I'm from from like the first um, writers uh, the first Kosa writers in the 1800s and possibly before before that 
and then just um, tracing the lineage of the writer from those times to modern times and um, the importance of a writer as an interlocutor between you know, um, society, systems of power, and um, the population. And also their fallibility, you know, how imperfect they are and how human they are. Looks like we have a lot to look forward to. Then. <laughs> so if there are any publishers here? <laughs> yes. This is a book that should absolutely be translated into Norwegian, and I hope it will be very soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotheque.